KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Could variants threaten herd immunity? I do worry that removing the mask mandate might put kids and folks who are immunocompromised at risk. I'm Jade Hindman with Claire Tragesser. Maureen Cavanaugh is off. This is KPBS Midday Edition. We'll tell you about the new Office of Child and Youth Success. This is going to be that central node where parents know if their child is facing a challenge, they'll be able to go to the Office of Child and Youth Success and find a resource that they need for their children. And how the Black arts community is celebrating Juneteenth. Plus, we talk about the Hollywood musical In the Heights. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Following the end of the state's tiered reopening system, many Californians are beginning to drop their masks as they go about their daily lives. The threat of COVID-19, however, still remains. And with a significant portion of state residents without their first or second dose of the vaccine, questions remain about how the state's changing regulations will affect its progress towards herd immunity. Joining me now is Rebecca Fielding Miller, an epidemiologist and UC San Diego professor. Welcome, Rebecca. Hello. Thanks for having me. So how do you think lifting most of the state's COVID restrictions, including the use of masks, will affect the fight against the pandemic? You know, I think that we've definitely reached a point where celebrating um, case rates in San Diego are very low, which is wonderful. And about 75% of people in our county have gotten at least their first shot, which is fantastic. I do think that it's important to keep in mind, though, that 25% of people still haven't gotten vaccinated and nobody under 12 has been vaccinated with a few very rare exceptions for research. And so we are not completely out of the woods yet. We also know that there are some people who are immunocompromised. Maybe they are undergoing treatments for cancer or other diseases for whom the vaccines might not work as well. So it's great that numbers are so low, it's great that we can go about our daily business. But I do worry that removing the mask mandate might lead to a bit of a bump and might put certain people, especially kids and folks who are immunocompromised at risk. The county's Health and Human Services Agency recently reported that 83 percent of eligible San Diegans are fully vaccinated. You know, the number is closer to 60 percent if you include children younger than 12. What's the significance of this milestone for the spread of the disease? I think it's absolutely wonderful. I think it is a huge accomplishment and the county should really be praised for getting so many people vaccinated so quickly. But it is people who are over the age of 12 
and you know many of us live with or quite like people who are under the age of 12 and it does mean that last set of people the 20 percent the 25 percent um, who haven't gotten a shot that's never at random right it's never just sort of a, a random selection 20 percent of the county is not vaccinated it's really often the people who are nervous about interacting with the healthcare system because they haven't been treated well in the past or people who think that you know COVID's not that big a risk so i don't have to take um, any sort of precautions at all and ironically they might put themselves at slightly higher risk so i would have some caution about what might be happening if we have 20 percent of adults who could potentially be continuing this pandemic and we know that you know every infection is an opportunity for a new variant that could potentially escape the vaccines that we already have and that would be just terrible to set back all of our hard work that far How much will our community protection from COVID-19 change once we hit herd immunity for all San Diegans, uh, including children? I think it's important to really remind ourselves, we've thrown around this term herd immunity a lot, and it's a really, really important term in public health. But I think we have a little bit confused it with the idea of eradication. So once 75% of San Diegans are vaccinated, that's it. COVID is eradicated in San Diego County and we can all go about our days and, you know, blow candles on birthday cakes. 75% of the county being vaccinated means that if somebody does get infected, whether it's a breakthrough infection from somebody who's vaccinated or it's one of those 25% of adults who have chosen not to get vaccinated or it's anybody under the age of 12, if somebody does get infected, it means the probability that they can pass that infection on to somebody else is a lot lower. There's like a one one in four chance that they can pass that infection on to the person next to them. And when the possibility that you can pass an infection on to somebody else, when that possibility drops really low, it means that the virus is essentially trapped in the one person who is infected, it can't escape to somebody else. But that's just probability. That's how it works at a community level. And so we can definitely see the potential for the virus jumping around a lot amongst these pockets of people who spend time together and who are less likely to get vaccinated because we spend time with people who are like us. And, and in short, you know, the danger of COVID variants continues to really weigh heavy on the minds of, of California residents and health officials. What kind of risks do these variants still pose, even with so many vaccinated people? Certainly, we've seen that B117 is now the predominant um, variant here in San Diego. We know that it is more infectious. And I think we talked a lot about this race between the vaccines and the variants. And we did a really great job. And I, I think we won that race with B117, which is really exciting. We're also seeing what we're calling now, people might have heard of the, the Delta variant. This is the variant of the virus that we saw emerge in India in, in a pretty devastating way. One thing that we're seeing in the UK in particular is for people who have only gotten one shot, the Delta variant can do a really good job of overcoming what that vaccine has already taught your immune system. So if people have only gotten one dose and they're hesitant, now is a great time to get a second dose. We also see that this Delta variant is a lot more infectious and it can be a lot more severe. And so we want first people to get vaccinated so that they do not get this. And we also want people to get vaccinated so that if they do get this, they're not the one who provides this virus with the opportunity to mutate even a little bit more so that it can overtake somebody's immune system. Even if they did all the studying, the test is just too hard and they can't overcome it. I have been speaking with Rebecca Fielding Miller, an epidemiologist and UC San Diego professor. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. 
In the segment you just heard, we said 83% of eligible San Diegans are fully vaccinated. That number is actually 62.5%. We regret the error. San Diego's newly passed city budget includes $350,000 to launch an Office of Child and Youth Success. San Diego City Council member Raul Campillo, who represents District 7, advocated for the new office, and he joins me now to talk about it. Welcome. Thanks so much, Claire, for having me today. So you've advocated increasing city services for children and families for a while now. Tell us about how the new Office of Child and Youth Success uh, will work and why does the city need it? So let's start with why the city needs it. Many other cities across the country and in San Francisco and Los Angeles have offices uh, within the office of the mayor that are dedicated to nothing but thinking about programs and policies that will help children and our youth and help their families find those opportunities for their young ones. So we need that to just live up to the standard that other cities in California have. But on a policy front, we just know it's so expensive to live in San Diego right now that parents need help finding affordable, quality childcare. And that's something that the city has never done before. We've never gone into that health and human services realm that we really should have. Uh, advocates for the past 15 years have been trying to get this office. And this is the year we were able, able to finally do it uh, together with Councilman uh, Elo Rivera. Uh, he and I really went to bat to make sure that this was not just on our list of priorities, but at the top of the list of our priorities. And so it's a really, really big thing for San Diego families. And tell us more about what the office will do. So first, what it will do, will it will have an executive director and a policy programmer and a youth intern just to start off that will bring together many organizations to formulate a framework for parents to find opportunities for their children, most centrally around childcare. Uh, this is also an economic development issue. And I, as the chair of the economic development uh, committee here in the city uh, council, uh, asked our real estate department to identify locations that the city owns that can be transformed or where we can build childcare facilities so that we can facilitate more opportunities for parents. It will also be a central policy advisor to the mayor on so many different programs we have through the libraries, through the parks and recreation department, uh, so that we have a streamlined effort to get good opportunities in front of our children and have them be able to take advantage of them. You mentioned childcare. I know the city provides some services for young people and families already. For example, I believe there's a childcare coordinator for the city. So how will this office be different? Well, that childcare coordinator uh, role has actually diminished over many, many years. And that is centrally for, for uh, city employees to be able to find childcare for their children so that we have that benefit to attract uh, high-quality employees to work for the city. This is going to be far more wide-reaching. This is going to be in, in partnership with the county and other cities as well, because we know so many people who work in the city of San Diego don't necessarily live in the city of San Diego. And so this is going to be formulating a list of available child care spots throughout the region. It's going to be 
uh, facilitating uh, the conversations between parents and getting on those wait lists, as, as many of your listeners will know, they usually have to wait eight, nine, 10 months or longer to get off a wait list to get their child into quality and affordable child care. So it's going to be doing that big legwork for the parents so that they don't have to take it on themselves. And then, of course, working with partners, as, including federal partners like the Navy, uh, to find those spaces and open them up so that we can get more children in child care and really facilitate that for the parents. It's really about taking that burden off the parents' shoulders because they already have to pay really high rent and they already have to drive really far for their jobs. Uh, finding quality child care should, should be much easier in the city of San Diego. Now, you've also said you want the office to take on housing and food insecurity, mental health issues, helping with job and education opportunities long term. And those are big challenges. When do you think the new office will begin to make a difference in these areas? Well, right now, we've just got the funding in the budget for the $350,000. Over the next two, three months, uh, as the chair of the Economic Development and Intergovernmental Relations Committee, I am going to be crafting with my colleagues there, particularly Councilmember Elo Rivera, uh, the, the ordinance that implements it. As many of your listeners will know, the Commission on Police Practices was passed last November, and it's taking many months to get the implementing ordinance in place. The Office of Race and Equity was passed in last year's budget. We're still at the point of almost, uh, we still haven't hired our executive director. I, from what I understand, we're very close to hiring that executive director. These things usually take about a year to get in place so that we have the, the proper staffing and the best candidates for the executive director roles and those higher level roles hired. And so I think that within a year, we're going to have that. But that doesn't mean we're not going to start to accomplish a lot of the other aspects. Like I said, through my committee, I'm already having city staff identify locations so that when we hire that executive director in the next year, we'll already have a list of places that they can start to work on so that we can have child care facilities. And then on the other issues you mentioned about housing, uh, food insecurity, mental health, this is going to be that central node where parents know if their child is facing a challenge, they'll be able to go to the Office of Child and Youth Success and find a resource that they need for their children. Now, the creation of this office comes at a time where many city services for youth and families are still closed. For example, libraries, rec centers, and pools, I believe. Would this office be able to help get those going again? Well, I fully anticipate that those services will be back in place before we hire an executive director. Uh, it's going to be three months before we actually create the office through an implementing ordinance, and then several months as we staff up. And that hiring is going to be done through the mayor's office and Mayor Gloria is going to have a key role in that as well. So I think that from what I understand, as we roll out of COVID, we will see the libraries and the and the recreation centers and those community pools opened before this office is, is really in place. Would the money have been better spent on just restarting existing programs? I don't think that the money uh, would have been better spent that way because we need to invest now in the core planning group that is the Office of Child and Youth Success so that we have these services secured and expanded over the long term. $350,000 uh, is good for setting up this sort of internal office in the mayor's office. Uh, it, you know, going towards opening a pool, uh, going towards opening a library as we are still trying to protect people's health. Uh, and as we are 
seeing with the library funding, uh, a reshuffling of, of staffing so that we can open it up in a financially responsible manner. I don't think that the $350,000 would have gone all that far in opening any of those services that you named, but it, it will go far if we invest it now in this particular office that we just did on Tuesday. I've been speaking to San Diego City Council member Raul Campillo, who represents the 7th Council District, including Linda Vista, Mission Valley, San Carlos, and Tierra Santa. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Claire. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Claire Tregesser. Maureen Cavanaugh is off. After more than 160 years, Black Independence Day, otherwise known as Juneteenth, is on its way to becoming a federal holiday. On Tuesday, the U.S. Senate passed a bill that would make June 19th, the day that the last enslaved Americans learned they were free in 1865, the 12th federal holiday. The bill is also expected to pass the House. Black Americans have been marking the day with celebrations and gatherings since 1865. In San Diego this week, the Black Artist Collective is in the middle of a week-long Say It Loud festival with original plays about the Black experience. The festival culminates on Saturday with an in-person Juneteenth event at Balboa Park put on by Artists for Black Lives. Joining me to talk about Juneteenth and all of the local commemoration is Joy Yvonne Jones, president of the San Diego Black Artist Collective and one of the playwrights, directors, and organizers of the Say It Loud Festival. Joy, welcome. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Uh, Let's start with the news that the Senate passed the Juneteenth holiday bill yesterday. What's your reaction to this and Juneteenth uh, being in the national spotlight right now? I am so overjoyed. Honestly, Growing up in Houston, Texas, I didn't know that it wasn't a national holiday until I became an adult and left Texas. So it is just, it's overdue, but I am appreciative and so happy that this day is getting the recognition that it deserves. Um, How have you celebrated and commemorated Juneteenth throughout your life? Well, my favorite thing was going to the parade in downtown Houston. It was always a huge event. All of the um, Black high schools in Houston and uh, HBCUs around town uh, in Houston and right outside of Houston would come to downtown Houston and just throw the biggest party. There would be um, food that everyone brought and would share with each other. My grandmother, my great grandmother and all of her siblings and all of my cousins would come out and we would celebrate. 
And then after the parade, we go to the neighborhood park, which is called Emancipation Park, and hang out there some more. So it was always a huge community event. And uh, yeah, and we got to see some of our community leaders marching in the parade. And we, you know, we would take turns trying to get their attention to get them to yell at us. Um, So yeah. Wow. The Say It Loud Festival that's happening this week uplifts the stories of the Black experience through art. What does it mean to you to share these stories with audiences? It means the world to me. I had a traditional theater school education, and I've learned the classics, and I can do Shakespeare upside down, backwards and forward. And it wasn't until my senior year at the University of Minnesota where I was handed August Wilson. And I knew of Intozaki Shange and Susan Murray Parks, but it, it really dawned on me that there is more that I should be studying and, and there's, there's more that should be illuminated. And so sharing Black art during this important holiday is a dream come true for me. And we, I feel it in what we create, how fulfilling it is to the artists to really be able to share our stories our way. And let's talk about the Black playwriting talent in San Diego contributing to the virtual plays being staged. Tell me about the mango tree and we danced and get on board. Okay, so the mango, uh, the mango tree written by BB Mama and directed by, by Claire Simba. I'm going to use BB's words, her take on, on a folktale. And she was inspired to write this because uh, someone mentioned a haunted mango tree to her and she loves folktales. And that is, and she has memories, fond memories of how her father would tell her stories and really act them out. And so this is her creation and her embodiment of the folktales that uh, were close to her. And she is just so amazing in how she tells the story. She really wraps you in it and you get lost in her words and and how earnestly she works to share this story. And we danced. It's by Mickey Vale, directed by myself. And it is a story of um, a glimpse into the love that Ruth Ellis and Babe Franklin had for each other. And how important it was for them to create a space where as queer Black people in the 1940s and 50s, they could be safe. And they created a juke joint in Detroit, Michigan called The Gay Spot. So we get a glimpse into that history. Get On Board is a journey through the evolution of Black music through time, starting with the African drums and going through hip hop. And in this, we we touch on popular dances. We touch on, I share a lot of poetry. I wrote a lot of poetry for that show. And it is honestly a really fun party that you learn from and you'll cry a little bit in that show. But I think at the end of it, you'll get a really nice picture of the evolution of Black music. Mm. And we have a clip from tonight's show, Get On Board. Here's Leonard Patton singing the classic Sam Cooke tune, Touch the Hem of His Garment. He said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know that I would be made whole. She said, oh, 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 o
Mm. And, you know, Artists for Black Lives San Diego returns this weekend, bringing entertainment and a fair to Balboa Park. Tell us about what will be happening at Balboa Park this Saturday and some of the creative people behind it. We are a part of this event. Ebony Muse and her wonderful team at uh, that is Artists for Black Lives created it. And we will be sharing some of the pieces from Get On Board, as well as other things that some of our membership have to offer. And honestly, like last year, it's just going to be a very community-driven, open and embracing event where people can share their talents and how they feel about the current times and just celebrate together, celebrate Juneteenth. And performing and sharing art like, you know, theater, music or dance can bring the community joy and togetherness, especially after this year. Um, But how is art and the theater wrapped up in the fight for racial and social justice? And has the theater stepped up? The theater is supposed to be a reflection of the world around us. And oftentimes it has fallen short because of the entertainment side of it. And speaking about race in America is kind of like the peas and carrots no one wants to eat. It's it's necessary because if we don't deal with it, it comes back to haunt us and it and it hurts. And we see how those scars can be reopened. We saw that this past year. And if theaters are truly going to do their job by reflecting the world around us, theater, art in general. If they're going to do their job, they have to do more than just say, we stand with. No, we want to see the evidence of. And there is an understanding that theaters have been closed for 15 months. We haven't been able to gather for uh, 15 months. So there is going to be a creaky time of reopening. But I caution artistic directors against doing performative gestures that have no depth. We can see it. And it makes us question if we're welcome in your institutions. Amen. I've been speaking with Joy Yvonne Jones, president of the San Diego Black Artists Collective and one of the playwrights, directors, and organizers of Say It Loud Festival. Joy, thank you so much for joining us and happy Juneteenth. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been almost four and a half years since San Diegans said goodbye to their beloved Chargers. Following the team's relocation after 56 years in the city, many wonder how the city's sports landscape would fare after the loss of an iconic franchise. But in the time since Chargers owner Dean Spanos decided to move the team, there have been some notable winners among San Diego's sports teams. Joining me with more is Tom Krasovic, a columnist and sports writer for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Tom, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So has there been a clear winner in the field of local sports since the Chargers packed up and moved on? There have been three clear winners, the the Padres, the soccer community, and San Diego State University. They've all come out stronger since the Chargers owner, Dean Spanos, and his siblings decided to move the team, which had been in San Diego for 56 years. How has Chargers fandom fared since the team relocated? Well, you still have folks in San Diego who watch the games. The ratings are still good, nowhere near as good as when the team was here. But they still have pretty good support in terms of the TV viewing as far as going to the games up in 
Carson uh, and now Englewood, not so great, but contributing to the team's attendance in in, uh, Los Angeles. Do you think that people watching have become, are, are still fans, or do you think they're more haters at this point? I think it's hard to know exactly, but my anecdotal experience is uh, a good number of people still care about the team, may not be fans of the ownership, but there's just something uh, about the team that is hard for them to totally cut ties. Yes, there are people who do enjoy seeing the team lose. That That's true, too. Uh, You make the case that San Diego's remaining sports franchises actually saw the departure of the Chargers as a good thing. Can you tell us about that? Yes, two examples. The Padres are in the East Village, and the Chargers had targeted adjacent property to have a stadium built there, a very large stadium, approximately 70,000 seats, maybe a little less. And this was not something that excited the Padres. They couldn't say a whole lot about it publicly, but they didn't want the Chargers sort of stealing their thunder downtown. It it presented some real challenges for the Padres. And as we know, in the aftermath of the Chargers' departure, that same property, the Padres, have obtained uh, development rights where City Hall under Kevin Faulkner and, and the City Council, they approved a Padres real estate development for that site. So that's a big victory. So those are a couple victories for the Padres. Plus, they become the only major sports team in San Diego, which is pretty rare for a city this large, eighth largest city. So several victories for the Padres. And then San Diego State had wanted to buy land in Mission Valley, where the Chargers Stadium was, and succeeded there, as we know. uh, And they're building a football stadium of their own. And the soccer community I had mentioned, we've now seen three professional teams sprout up in San Diego since the Chargers' decision. And as you say, a different kind of football has jumped in popularity in recent years. What can you tell us about the rise of soccer fandom locally? Well, you have three teams to choose from. You have two men's professional teams, 1904 and San Diego Loyal. And then now coming on board is a, a team from the top women's league, which will make its first appearance on the field next season, 2022 which is pretty exciting considering this league will be in its 10th season. So it's got more staying power than the previous women's soccer league that was in San Diego almost 20 years ago. So the new women's team, the president was the head coach of the very popular U.S. women's national team. Her name is Jill Ellis. They won two World Cups with her as the coach. So that's a great connection and pretty exciting development. And, you know, San Diego is still without a team also in the top men's league in the nation. Is there any speculation that the MLS could establish a franchise here? There is speculation, nothing concrete. That's a great point. The San Diego Loyal is in the second tier of men's professional soccer. And there's some thought that the combination of of the person running the soccer operation, Landon Donovan, who was a very good MLS player and U.S. national team player, his connections and the fact San Diego is an attractive market could potentially lead the MLS to come here. In addition to more widely known mainstream sports, San Diegans certainly aren't starved for choice when it comes to its minor sports scene. What else is out there for local sports fans? 
Oh, goodness. There's a lot of them. It's, I've had trouble keeping track of them. Now, you still have the San Diego Gulls, which have a strong core of followers that go to the sports arena to watch hockey. They're the top affiliate of the Anaheim NHL franchise. You have the indoor soccers who've been here for decades. They're heading up to Oceanside to an arena. You have the San Diego Seals indoor lacrosse. San Diego Strike Force, which is indoor football, also in the Midway District Arena. You have tennis in Carlsbad, a professional team. You have Ultimate Disc, professional team. And the San Diego Legion rugby team is in its fourth year. So I probably missed someone, but there's plenty of teams. In a perfect world, we would see San Diego in the WNBA. I think it could be a good match. We aren't there yet. So uh, something to keep an eye on. I've been speaking with Tom Krasovic, a columnist and sports writer for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Have a great day. There was a cartoon early on in the pandemic that showed dogs calling each other on the phone saying, how could life have gotten this good? Meanwhile, cats were calling each other and saying, how could things have become this terrible? But the joke has truth to it. With many of us working from home for the past year and a half, our pets have gotten used to having us around. But now, as people begin to return to the office, those pets will have to adjust to us being away. Joining me with tips on how to ease that transition is Amanda Kowalski, Director of Behavior Programs at the San Diego Humane Society. Amanda, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So to start, it's a joke that dogs want us around all the time and cats never want us around. But there's also some truth to it, right? So tell us which types of pets, dog breeds in particular, have the hardest time being alone. You know, there really isn't any particular dog breed or cat breed um, that prefers being alone or um, being with a person. Um, it really has to do with that that animal's individual personality, um, just like humans, right? They have a spectrum of how involved they want to be um, socially with other animals or with other people. And so I think it's really important that pet owners know that and really understand where their dog or their cat is on that spectrum. And so what tips do you have for dog owners to prepare their pet to be alone during the day? Yeah, you know, it's going to be really important for pet parents to really kind of ease into this transition and allow their dog or their cat some time to be able to get used to this new routine. So if you know that you're going back into the office and, you know, maybe it's two days a week um, for now, right? Um, You can start practicing um, short departures, maybe go for a walk around the block and really see how your pet is doing while you're away. Okay, so you mean go for a walk around the block by yourself, not with your pet. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Go for a walk by yourself, leave your pet at home. You can even set up a Zoom to record and see see what your pet is doing. Or if you have have a camera, you can... Uh, record them that way too and see how they're doing while you're away um, just for a few minutes. Um, And that will give you a good idea of how your pet is going to do during this transition. Are there other things people can do to set their dogs up for, for success while they're alone? Like say exercise, or I know some people like to play the radio for their dogs. 
those are all really great suggestions. Exercise is really great for both our dogs and our cats. Uh, playing music, there's music that has been um, uh, created specifically for dogs and cats in mind uh, that appear to, you know, how they uh, sense things. That's a really great option, leaving the TV on for them. Uh, focusing on enrichment is great for both of those pets or actually any pet that you have, even if it's a small animal. Uh, so enrichment could be uh, maybe only feeding them a portion of their food and then taking the other portion and, and creating like a frozen, uh, we call them uh, pupsicles here at the behavior center and leaving your pet uh, a pupsicle when you, when you leave so that they have something a little bit longer lasting that they can um, forage for that food. Uh, it helps stimulate their mind. So that's one way that parents can focus on providing them some other things so that they're not bored while they, while they go back to work. Uh, and I know there's even companies that make um, treat dispensers that make dogs solve problems or <laughs> work on puzzles to to kind of keep them stimulated throughout the day. What about um, people who are maybe sending a dog to daycare or having a dog walker? What considerations should owners take there? Yeah, if your dog uh, loves being around other dogs, dog daycare could be really great. Um, they offer, you know, playgroups uh, at dog daycares, and that's a great way to one provide your dog with some social contact. Uh, uh, you know, while they're transitioning into not having you around all the time, and it provides them with exercise and uh, social stimulation with other species. So that's really awesome. And the same with even having a, a dog walker come in, um, or you can have a cat sitter come in just for a little bit to check on your cat and how they're doing. And again, it provides them with some social interaction during that time. So it gives them a little bit of a break where they don't have to be alone for a full, you know, eight to 10 hours a day. Now, I have a Shiba Inu, which is as close to a cat, I think, as you can have in a dog. And so she honestly <laughs> didn't really care <laughs> that that we've been home this past year. She kind of just does her own thing. And I also learned that she sometimes doesn't get out of bed until 11 a.m. or noon. Um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Are there things you've heard from dog owners who've learned funny behavior about their pets this year? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even with my own dog, who is uh, here with me during the interview, uh, you know, I started noticing some, you know, funny behavior from him. He likes to hump his toys during the middle of the day, and it's so random, and it was like at clockwork. <laughs> um, and so I have heard from pet parents some of those things. And I think that's so awesome that over the last 15 months, right, pet parents, they got to find out more about their pet's routine and really kind of dive into like how their pets live. All right. Well, I've been speaking with Amanda Kowalski, Director of Behavior Programs at the San Diego Humane Society. And Amanda, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Claire Tregesser with Jade Heineman. Maureen Cavanaugh has the day off. In the Heights opened last week. It serves up a rare commodity, a big-budget Hollywood musical created by a Puerto Rican-American, directed by an Asian-American, and featuring a racially diverse cast. 
KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando explores what the wide release of a film like this can mean for the Latino and Latinx communities. Calixto Chinchilla runs the New York Latino Film Festival and has been following the evolution of In the Heights since it began percolating in the mind of Lin-Manuel Miranda more than a decade ago. Chinchilla sees it as a love letter to his former neighborhood. Let me just listen to my block. The unfortunate thing is that, you know, the Heights is changing. You know, the gentrification is real. You know, a lot of us can't afford to be there anymore. It's a different neighborhood. So that even that movie becomes a time capsule, if you will. Say it. So it doesn't disappear. Washington Heights! In the Heights tells a particular story about one community, but Latino playwright Herbert Seguenza says that's not how Hollywood sees it. They put us all in this one homogenous group, and it's it's just very unfortunate. Unfortunate and problematic, says Ethan Vontilo, founder of the San Diego Latino Film Festival. The problem is we put too much pressure on these movies because it's the one film of the whole year. This has happened many times. I've seen this over the years, right? All this pressure is put on this one film. And if it's not a success, then they say, OK, well, that's why the audiences don't want to see their movies. Seguenza says the scarcity of these films is the issue. Because they, we want them to represent all of our feelings, all of our history all of our uh, nuances, and that's just impossible. It's just impossible. Uh, We have tons of stories, but they're just not represented in Hollywood. Both Seguenza and Vontilo have grown jaded about Hollywood telling their stories. I heard a lot of people celebrating, oh my gosh, in the Heights, it's going to be, you know, a big change and we're going to see more Latinos in front of the screen and behind the screen. But, you know, we, unfortunately, I've heard that before. (laughs) We've seen that a few times with other films. Films like Zoot Suit, which challenged stereotypes 40 years ago. The mono you're about to see is a construct of fact and fantasy. It's always important to remember those who have come before us. And films like Zoot Suit paved the way for someone like Miranda to even make what he's currently made into Hollywood, to even distribute what's being made. But Zoot Suit was politically provocative in a way that In the Heights is not. And so I always am, uh, you know, really excited about films that try to push the boundaries a little bit and pr- promote social justice issues and promote educating the community. Uh, I would say In the Heights is more a little bit about, you know, a fantasy. Once upon a time, in a faraway land called Washington Heights. The Washington Heights of the film is about as realistic as the New York of West Side Story, which celebrates its 60th anniversary this year. Seguenza sees a similarity in the way the two films avoid politics. They really don't get deep, you know? It's really about the dancing, right? The dancing and and the love stories that really are carrying these films. They don't get deeper than that. For a young Latino filmmaker like Luis Martinez of 2AM Burrito Productions, the film was a mixed bag. I would have liked to seen uh, a Latinx director have the reins of this, but it made me feel really good to see it on the screen. It made me feel really good that the studio put its money behind a project like that. In the Heights, which opened in theaters and streaming on HBO Max, underperformed at the box office in Hollywood's eyes. But Martinez says that's an easy story to pitch an editor. In the Heights underperforms. What does this spell for Latinx audiences moving forward? But I think the people that are going to make the next project are going to get the real streaming numbers from HBO. You know, when you have access of dual releases online, every, you know, HBO Max password out there is getting used by three or four different Latino families. That's close to 80 people that could have theoretically watched the movie during the weekend. 
no matter how the film performed, Fontillo says the Latino community is excited about it. Just kind of seeing how already families are already reacting via social media, just like the sense of pride and seeing oneself on, uh, on the big screen. Seguenza agrees. But I think people are just reacting emotionally because we just don't see ourselves. We just don't see ourselves on film. Martinez suggests celebrating the film while still taking time to criticize it where necessary. I think that as long as we have that conversation while still supporting it so that more artists like myself and other artists that are out there creating content and telling stories in all genres uh, have the chance to make more films is, is, is what I would like to see come out of this. But Seguenza feels that old cynicism creeping in because he doesn't see in the Heights opening any doors. There's not a lot of follow-up. I don't know of any big Latino projects coming out that are going to like follow it up next year. When Vontilo started the San Diego Latino Film Festival almost three decades ago, a film like In the Heights was just a dream. Back then, he was pushing Hollywood to simply make Latin stories and not whitewash Latino characters like West Side Story did. I think we're at a point now that we need to have, uh, you know, Latinos portraying Latinos on screen. And that and obviously that musical, that movie didn't uh, from uh, lots of the roles. And so In the Heights takes us to the next level. However, we're still not there, right? I mean, we still don't have the Latino director directing the film. But Chinchilla defends the choice of John M. Chu as director. You know, being Asian is not, you know, is not a majority either. Seguenza sees it as a labor issue. Whenever I don't see Latinos on film, it's really a labor issue because you're not going to get the second job if you're not if you didn't get the first job. Martinez says that perhaps a Latinx director would have been more sensitive to the diversity within the Latino community than a California-raised Asian American like Chu. And I think maybe that was why there's so much of this backlash about the casting. Um, and about specifically not enough Afro-Latinos displayed in the film other than dancing in the background. We have to have the internal conversation about, you know, Latino and Latino racism, colorism, colonialism, all these things that come up that, that become important. Martinez points out that Latinos make up a quarter of the movie-going audience, and Hollywood needs to reflect that on screen. That's why he says it's important to support In the Heights, even if it's not perfect. We can be celebrating the fact that this is happening. We can also kind of center ourselves and say every movie is not going to be able to be everything for every person. So in a way, we're privileged to start having those conversations. Fontilo says one film can't represent the entire community. It's, it's important that In the Heights just be the first of many <laughs> new films. Chinchilla urges people to not just support the film, but to see it in a theater and not streaming on HBO Max. Can we raise our voice tonight? Can we make a little noise tonight? You know, the way it's shot in, in Atomorphic, it, to hear it in the Dolby Theater, to be out, we've come too far as a people, period, in, in overcoming this pandemic, to come out, go to a theater, celebrate it, celebrate the culture, celebrate life, see this film the way it ought to be seen. This doesn't happen often. It doesn't happen often at all. Little details that tell the world we are not invisible. That is a theme that we got to really live up to. Again, Herbert Seguenza. We have to have more movies with specific details that really show us as human beings, as three-dimensional characters and not just these kind of cartoonish dancers. I really want to see something a little more substantive than this, you know. 
In the Heights takes us a long way from West Side Story, but there's still a long way to go. In the Heights is currently in cinemas and available streaming on HBO Max. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. <laughs> 